Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1979 film, 1941. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. When Steven Spielberg was 31 years old, he was the most popular director in Hollywood. As he said in an interview much later in life, he, quote, felt like Teflon. I felt like anything I put on film was going to succeed, end quote. And how could he not think that? His first major film, The Sugarland Express, was a great debut. Jaws, of course, broke records, while Close Encounters of the Third Kind secured his abilities to create wonder and awe. So it's no surprise that he believed that his fourth film, 1941, was going to be the biggest grossing comedy film in history. Well, it didn't quite turn out that way. Though history has pegged the failure of 1941 solely onto Spielberg, I want to note that screenwriters Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale should also be held responsible. Zemeckis and Gale were classmates in the film school at the University of Southern California in the mid-1970s and planned on making many blockbuster films together. Their first collaboration was I Want to Hold Your Hand, a semi-historical telling of the day the Beatles performed on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964. The movie bombed. Undeterred, Zemeckis and Gale pushed forward with their next script, a comedy about the aftermath of the Pearl Harbor bombing. At this time, Zemeckis was an apprentice of sorts to Steven Spielberg, learning about the craft of movie making. Spielberg wanted to throw Zemeckis and Gale a bone and decided that 1941 would be his next film. Spielberg understood the comedy behind it, wanting to make a movie similar to Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove and the more recent M.A.S.H., both successful war comedies. The plot has some basis in reality, using some of the reports of Los Angeles' fear after Pearl Harbor that California would be the next target for the Japanese, as well as the true history of a Japanese submarine reaching the California coast. The film takes us through a day in the Los Angeles area, where dozens of men, women, and children act hysterically over a possible Japanese bombing. I've seen the movie once all the way through, and that was for this podcast. I watched it once many years ago in college, but turned it off after an hour. It just wasn't funny, and I thought way too over the top. The second time that I tried to watch it, I got a little further in the movie, but got bored because it was about an hour into the movie and still nothing major was happening other than a big dance hall sequence. This time around, though, I stuck it out, and I think I laughed once. And that's what I think sunk the film in 1979. It's a comedy, but it's not funny. Spielberg wanted John Wayne and Charlton Heston to be in the film to give the comedy some heft but the two actors were afraid to come near it because the movie felt unpatriotic. They were just two of the many people who tried to talk Spielberg out of the film. Stanley Kubrick, who was a mentor of sorts to Spielberg, thought it should be a straight drama. I think Kubrick was on to something. It might have been a good dramatic film. When Spielberg screened his film for Columbia Pictures and Universal Pictures, both of whom were financing the film, 
executives wanted to cut about 30 minutes out of the 2-hour and 30-minute edit. It was simply too long for a perceived blockbuster film in those days. Spielberg fought to keep the footage in, but the studios won the day, putting out a two-hour film in December 1979. Remember that Spielberg had complete directorial control over Close Encounters, but had to do the same thing in 1977. The work Spielberg had to do in fall 1979 to cut out 30 minutes of film had a major effect on John Williams' score. Williams had written music for the longer film and recorded it in August and September. By the time Spielberg had his theatrical cut finished, Williams was deep into composing his score for The Empire Strikes Back. Williams did take one day to re-record a bit of music, but most of what Williams composed had to be chopped and diced so much that what audiences heard in the theater was somewhat jumbled. Music cues meant for one scene were transposed to another to help with transitions. Some other music was cut altogether as scenes were heavily edited. But what survived kept the tone of the score intact. While the visuals showed some crazy antics, including tanks plowing through houses and a street in Los Angeles acting as a landing strip, Williams's music was the glue that tried to keep everything from exploding in its own madness. This was Williams's first true comedy since working on Fitzwillie 12 years earlier. What made him such a great comedy music writer in the 1960s was not going overboard with the music, and he stayed true to that philosophy for 1941. After all, this wasn't a Warner Brothers cartoon, even if some of the actors were going for caricature. In the time between working on this film and starting pre-production of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Spielberg put together his official director's cut of Close Encounters of the Third Kind and put that back into theaters to much acclaim. That led to Spielberg getting the green light to make a director's cut of 1941, which was put out on home video in 1980. I don't think that version enhances the film at all. It tries to give us more character development, but I was just waiting longer for the climactic battle to happen. What stands out for 1941 is the lack of a lot of thematic material in the music. There's a theme for Donna, a woman who is obsessed with airplanes so much that she gets sexually aroused in them. But the major theme is for Wild Bill Kelso, the rogue pilot played by John Belushi. It's the basis of the famous march that has enjoyed a better life than the film, and you've probably heard it performed at many John Williams's concerts. That theme doesn't really show up until the 14-minute mark, when Kelso makes his first appearance, landing a plane in Death Valley. It's a great musical introduction, with the strings, tubas, and trombones 
playing a rhythm before the clarinet gives us the actual theme, which Spielberg calls his favorite John Williams march. Kelso falls out of his plane, accompanied by a brief flourish from the orchestra. Then, a key change in the orchestra prepares us for the big statement of his theme as he recovers from his fall. His theme works just like those melodies you might have heard for the hero in those B-movies from the 1940s, and that's what makes this music so fun to listen to. It's rooted in the time period of the film, not like someone in 1979 writing 1979 music to fit a film set in the 1940s. And to highlight what I mentioned before, it's not played for laughs, even though it does go into wild comedy as the scene progresses. Before that scene, there's not much musical excitement in the film, except for an overt homage to Jaws in the opening scene. Though Chrissy died in the opening of Jaws, the woman who played her, Susan Backline, returns to play a woman who goes skinny dipping in the chilly Pacific Ocean one week after the Pearl Harbor bombing. We hear the ominous music from Jaws, at least until the water begins to boil and a periscope lifts the woman into the air. On all commercial soundtrack releases of the score, the Jaws music is not as featured because it's using the actual music from the 1975 film, not music recorded for 1941. So there were probably rights issues. So let's hear the music as it plays in the film. Thank you. 
John Williams had not intended for such an overt musical homage, writing something more subtle before the filmmakers changed their minds. And using the music in the film from Jaws cost nothing, since it was owned by Universal. And as for that theme for Donna, it's nice enough. Even though there's sexual innuendo behind Donna's fascination with warplanes, Williams delivers something a little innocent as she looks adoringly at a plane on the runway. I give a lot of credit to Williams and Spielberg for not putting music over some of the hijinks in the film. But Williams got to work on the big set piece of the film, a jitterbug contest at a USO event. The intent was to use Benny Goodman's piece, Sing, 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 for the dance, but editing changed the pace of the scene. Just for reference, here is a bit of Goodman's composition. It's been used many times in other films, and you very well might recognize it. Since Goodman's piece wasn't going to work, but Spielberg liked the tone of the music, he asked Williams to write a variation on it. So, Williams went to work and handed in a piece called Swing, Swing, Swing.
I think this was the piece of music that Williams had to compose in the middle of his work on The Empire Strikes Back, but I don't have complete verifiable sources to corroborate that. It would make sense, though. So that sequence in the dance hall is the best part of the movie. The way the camera moves around the hall is masterful, and Michael Kahn's editing is excellent. This was Kahn's second film with Spielberg, and it showed why Kahn enjoyed the second longest collaboration Spielberg would have with his crew members. Kahn won an Oscar for editing Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but did not get an Oscar nomination for 1941, despite all the work he had to do in getting the film down to two hours and trying to keep it cohesive. In order to talk about the big dance hall brawl, I have to mention a few characters in the film. Wally is a young kid who wanted to participate in the Jitterbug contest before it was limited to military men only. He steals an army uniform and makes his way inside where he dances with the girl he loves, Betty. There's another army man named Stretch, played by Treat Williams, who also wants Betty, and his jealousy is what kicks off the fight. Stretch punches Wally, who lands at the feet of the sergeant whose uniform he stole. Wally's friend attempts to hit Stretch with a chair, but hits a Navy soldier instead, and that starts an Army versus Navy battle royale that is carefully choreographed, particularly in one 20-second uninterrupted shot that has more than 100 people doing so many crazy things in it. And John Williams used a variation on the Irish tune The Rakes of Mallow to run through that part of the sequence. Spielberg and Williams would revisit this scene five years later with the big brawl in the bar that starts Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Williams would arrange a version of Anything Goes through that big scene, similar to his work here in 1941. After that big, fun bar brawl, the movie starts to go off the rails. A lot of what happens is supposed to be played for laughs, but again, not very funny. Donna convinces a man to take her up in a plane on the promise of sex, and they are fired on by anti-aircraft guns believing them to be Japanese invaders. This starts the chaotic final hour of the film when Dan Aykroyd's sergeant is knocked out and a Ferris wheel is toppled before it rolls into the ocean. One of the notable actors in all of this is Robert Stack, who plays the straight man for absolutely no laughs unlike his very funny straight man the following year in Airplane. <laughs> 
So Donna's airplane is believed to be a Japanese invader and is fired upon. Wild Bill Kelso is firing on the airplane from the sky and manages to shoot it down. In that scene, Williams uses Kelso's theme and Donna's theme interchangeably, and you can kind of hear how they work together. The last hour of film has music, but nothing really stands out other than repeated uses of Kelso's March. Because of the major restructuring that took place for the director's cut, some of the music sounds disjointed as if it replaced what was originally supposed to go in that scene. If you feel the same way after watching the film, it's best to pick up a copy of the La La Land's record CD for a good listen. Before Kelso crashed his plane, he saw a Japanese submarine near the coast, and he takes off in a motorcycle to prevent an attack. Most of the music in the scene highlights a hard-working string section, and not much else. Thank you. 
The long night of fighting doesn't really mark a victory for anyone. The Japanese submarine isn't destroyed, though the amusement park featuring the Ferris wheel is blown to bits and a house is demolished. After crashing his motorcycle into the water, Kelso boards the Japanese submarine and for a moment, we think he's going to take care of the enemy. That's why you'll hear a triumphant statement of his theme here. Even though Kelso did not save the day, his theme closes out the film in the end credits. And that's likely because there's no other thematic material to use there, so there was no other choice. Now after giving this movie a serious viewing, I'm convinced that Steven Spielberg did not make 1941 as a prank to see how far he could go with making a movie. I really believe he thought he was making a very funny film. He's tried to defend 1941 over the years, but has lamented since that it really is not as funny as he had hoped. The movie was not a box office flop, even though many people believe it was. It recouped its budget and made a tiny profit for Universal and Columbia. But the critics were not kind to it. Spielberg shook it off as he immediately started planning a more straightforward action movie in collaboration with his good friend George Lucas. And to his credit, Spielberg's next four films would be big box office successes. Three of them would feature a marvelous score by John Williams, which we'll talk about very soon. As for Zemeckis and Gale, it took them a bit longer to recover from the troubles surrounding 1941. They collaborated on the screenplay to Used Cars the following year, which was another box office disappointment. The following year, Gale and Zemeckis came up with the idea of a boy traveling back in time where he would meet his teenage parents. That film, Back to the Future, took four years to get to the green light, but became one of the most popular comedies of all time. 
Spielberg continued to associate himself with Zemeckis and Gale, producing used cars and the Back to the Future trilogy. Interestingly, Spielberg won his first Oscar for directing the year before Zemeckis would also win an Oscar for directing. Williams was too busy in winter 1979 to worry about what critics were saying about 1941. He was sitting at his piano in a small cottage in Massachusetts, churning out a score for his next film, which would return him to that galaxy far, far away and give us another monumental score that goes beyond description. But I will attempt to put words into my love of The Empire Strikes Back on the next episode, and I'll have a guest co-host to help me. I'm very much looking forward to it. And in the meantime, folks, please send your comments to jeffswim at AOL.com or post them on the Podbean app. I also encourage you to write a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for taking the time to join me today. Until we meet again, the baton is down. <laughs>